Canada curious? This is the Yes We Canada podcast, the progressive's guide to getting the fuck out. This episode is called Not the 51st State, Y'all. Hi, I'm Matt Zimbel. In the late 1960s, a man who would eventually become one of the most respected poet-songwriters in the world made the decision to leave his hometown of Montreal and seek his fortune in America. As he was leaving, his mother gave him some sage advice. You be careful, Leonard. They're not like us down there. Leonard Cohen should have listened to his mama because 38 years later, his American manager, a lovely, charming woman whom I met when I played some shows with Leonard in 1993, stole more than $5 million from him. Last thing in the world you'd think would happen. America. The land of opportunity. Now, when I was a child living in New York, I recall staring at my parents' bookshelf in wonder because they had two copies of a book entitled Advice from a Failure. In my child's mind, I thought, wow, it's so hard for white middle-class folks to fail in America. These people need two copies of a book of advice on how to do it. Americans are bold, brash, and they seem to come with a self-promoting gene as standard equipment. It's almost as if when they get their smallpox vaccines at birth, they also get a chutzpah booster. Now, if for any reason the chutzpah supplement doesn't take, elementary school will fix that. Like all the other American school children in the 1960s, every morning before our teachers started nattering on about the commie threat, I would stand, place my hand on my heart, and pledge allegiance to our flag as I sang one of our anthems, My Country, Tis of Thee. Translation, My Country is Me. If that doesn't build ego in young prepubescent minds, I don't know what does. Now, My Country, Tis of Thee is one of the most important pieces of American patriotic music ever written. And here's the thing. At best, it's only half American. When Samuel Francis Smith, a Baptist minister living in Andover, Massachusetts, wrote it in 1831, he wrote the lyrics, but try as he might, he couldn't find a melody that felt patriotic enough. My country tis of thee. No. My country tis of thee. Tis of thee. No. Eventually, he just said, Fuck it. I'll use the melody from God Save the Queen. That sounds patriotic enough. Who'll know? Um, how about Shazam, dude? You Americans are bred to achieve. You have ambition, or as they say, pluck. When you get to Canada, it'll take a while, but you'll start to recognize a subtle cultural difference between Yanks and Canucks. You see, there's an American sense of optimism that's a founding trait of being a Yankee. I married a Canadian, and when her family would go on vacation, they would say, Geez, I hope it rains during the drive, eh? That way we'll have a better chance of good weather for our stay, eh? I thought this was crazy talk. 
I'd yell at them. I'm from America. I want it to be sunny on the drive, sunny for the whole vacation, and sunny on the drive back. In Canada, where the weather is less hospitable and 90% of the population lives shivering, huddled to the American border, pessimism is more prevalent. Our motto, the national cut line, is... Ameri esque ad mare, which is Latin for, if something can go to shit, it will. Well, not exactly. More accurately translated, and, and you should jot this down because you might need it for your citizenship test, it translates as, from sea to sea. Beautiful, eh? So simple, straightforward, talking about the sea in a very down-to-earth way, no? Unlike y'all. And crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. For us, it's sea to sea. For you, it's sea to shining sea. You just can't resist hype and exceptionalism, can you? And that really speaks to a larger psychology. The American approach, or spirit if you will, has been called can-do. One of my favorite examples of that took place when Ronald Reagan was campaigning for president in 1980. Because number one, we can't change the course we're on without you. He made a stop at the housing projects in the Bronx and used the poverty backdrop to deliver his stock stump speech calling for tax cuts for the rich. The speech was warmly received by the residents and the journalists were stumped. One writer questioned a woman living in abject poverty and asked why on earth would she support Reagan's tax cuts for the 1%. She said, well, you see, honey, one day I'm going to be rich and I sure don't want to pay a lot of taxes. You go, girl. That is what you call financial planning. I believe the reason that Canadians have less optimism than Americans is directly linked to immigration, or perhaps I should say the lack of immigration. As measured by landmass, Canada is the second largest country in the world, but we're only 38 million souls. Or you can think of the souls as we're only 38 million potential customers. So let's say you invent and manufacture a really cool widget. In Canada, if you have over-the-top success, you're going to sell 100,000 widgets, and that's huge. Merci, bonsoir. But you've not really made any serious money. Have the same success in America, and on a per capita basis, you've sold 3 million widgematics, and the development costs are the same as they would be in Canada. You made bank. Money, money, cash. And you'll probably get an offer to write a book and guest lecture at Widget U. You prosper, we scrape by. Now, this is in no way scientific, but every time I go to the U.S., I bump into an ethnic group called Trust Fund Babies. They're known as Winners of the Vagina Lottery. I'm sure we must have this ethnicity up here in Canada, but I've never met one. So while there's less dough in Canada, we have a tremendous spirit of creativity, great ideas, incredible execution of ideas. In short, we have innovation en masse. What we're not so good at here is sustainability. We can get it off the ground, but we can't keep it up in the air. 
Now, some will contest this premise, that Canadians lack the sustainability gene, and I shall only point to Nortel, Blackberry, and Cirque du Soleil, which was owned by U.S. and Chinese interests. Uh, that was before they filed for bankruptcy protection due to COVID-19. But you see what I mean. Okay, a disclaimer is in order. I am not an economist, though I did finish grade nine. So, if you buy my premise, we have to ask, why does Canada have the sustainability problem? Some intellectuals say, Canada's laws protecting intellectual property are some weak. Other intellectuals say, where's Canada? Guys, come on, intellectuals can have a southern drawl. Don't be such a bigot. Other smart intellectual people say that Canada does have a sustainability problem because startup capital is so hard to find here. You see, your bankers are cowboys, rascals, and Ivy League hoodlums. Our bankers are church lady with small hands, dour facial expressions, and large, ill-fitting suits. Their tiny hands hold on to their money and they gloat. Our banking system is prudent, eh? Well, yeah when you only lend money to people who already have a lot of it. That's the word, prudent. But perhaps a more apt word would be provincial. Now, fuck it, let's go all in. Our bankers are chicken shit motherfuckers lacking in world-class vision. Yeah, that's it. When things went south for y'all in 2008 because of your reckless scamming banker hoodlums, we were fine, thank you very much, because our bankers clasped their money between their tiny hands, never gave us any of it, and therefore couldn't lose it in a downturn. I cannot tell you how many times I've read this headline. Bank such and such posts quarterly profits, 30% increase over last year to $2 billion. 350 bank employees also laid off. Hey, boys, let's celebrate the profits by closing a few more branches and moving another call center to Tasmania. Up here, it's a given that Canadian banks and venture capitalists are legendarily risk-adverse. So much so that way back in 1944, the Canadian government created a bank to finance the transformation of manufacturing from the World War II military effort to the industrial peacetime applications because Canadian banks wouldn't lend their money. Eventually, the bank that the government created became known as the Business Development Bank of Canada. It's kind of like your Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, except without the white trash names and more of a focus on business development instead of the promotion of mortgage crime. Now, BDC today holds $36 billion in assets and it's 100% owned by the people of Canada. Since 1998, it's paid out $746 million in dividends to its shareholders, us, the people of Canada. So when we say, come on up, the socialism's fine, this is a good example of your future tax dollars at work. As long as you have a viable business plan that's well presented, even as a landed immigrant or permanent resident, you'll likely get funded by BDC when no other banker in Canada would touch your innovative idea of building a wall along the American and Canadian border to ensure that no more of your people get in after you've comfortably settled here. Originally, the Business Development Bank was known as the Bank of Last Resort because they'd lend money to small and medium-sized businesses that had been denied financing from the regular banky dudes. They were all dudes, 
probably all white dudes. Now, if we look at this time, this is in the back half of the 1940s, we'd find that the banking establishment in both Canada and the United States would have been ethnically very similar. Banky dudes were cut from British and Scottish cloth. They were waspy, in short, the ruling class. So if our collective banking establishments are of such similar DNA, why would your ruling class be more adventurous than our ruling class? The reason is that many of the people who founded Canada used to live in the United States when it was called the British colonies. These future Canadian founders were called Tories or Whigs, and they were loyal. They loved the king's ass. When you all got uppity about paying taxes on your tea without being able to vote, and you decided to convene a revolution, these British oppressors, your owners, decided to fight back. And long story short, you won, they lost, and in defeat, they ran away or got kicked out, and many moved to what would eventually become known as Canada. Get out of here, you bunch of pussies. Your founding fathers are revolutionaries. Our founding fathers are anti-revolutionaries. Your corporate motto is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ours is peace, order, and good government. And I ask you, who would you rather party with under a bridge with a bottle of Jack? I get it. You're confused. From below the 49th parallel, you see us as so progressive. I hear you ask, if your characterization of Canadian fiscal conservatism is correct, then why does Ted Cruz call you the Republic of Canada, Stan? Well, that's because in Canada, just like in the United States, Ted Cruz is a fucking asshole, as he so aptly proved last week on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Majority Leader. I yield up to five minutes to the Senator from Texas, Senator Cruz. We are gathered at a time when democracy is in crisis. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. We're called the Republic of Canada stand by your conservative media because our conservative anti-revolutionaries eventually came to understand that certain progressive policies like universal health care and access to safe abortions and accessible education not only made humane sense, but also economic sense. So now, on the precipice of your second revolution, this one hosted by the Fox Militia, we're here to help you prepare for your move to Canada. Listen up. There's a gun! There's a gun! There's a gun! He's got a gun! He's got a gun! Remember I was telling you that we have a problem with sustainability in Canada? That's because Canadians are a modest, humble people. We do not like to draw attention to ourselves publicly. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. We've talked about it on the show before. And this one will not be on the test, but it's very important for you to understand. The tall poppy reaches for the limitless sky with ambition to grow big and tall. And the other poppies envy its height and power and have it professionally chopped the fuck down. We have C to C, you have C to Shining C. Examples of this abound. 
1957, our Minister of External Affairs, Lester Mike Pearson, which is kind of like your Secretary of State without the airplane and the motorcade, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in founding the United Nations Peacekeeping Force to reduce tensions in the Suez Canal. When the news of the prize made it back to Ottawa, it was cocktail hour, and the dour matrons of the Ottawa social scene were grasping their pearls aghast. The Nobel Peace Prize? Well, just who does this Mike Pearson person think he is? I got this one. Lester Mike Pearson went on to become our Prime Minister, which is why when you fly to Toronto with the IRS, Homeland Security, and FBI in your tail, you'll land at Pearson Airport. Pearson served as Prime Minister from 1963 to 1968 and did some big work. Universal free health care was created on his watch with a huge assist from the New Democratic Party's Tommy Douglas. Pearson stood up to LBJ and kept Canada out of the war in Vietnam. His government also created student loans, the Canada Pension Plan, and he is considered the father of our flag. You know our flag, right? The one you sewed onto your backpack before leaving for your drunken, debaucherous teenage tour of Europe so that people would like you? Do you know what tree the leaf on our flag comes from? Because there's a good chance this banal question will be on your Canadian citizenship test. Here's a clue. It comes from the tree that makes the liquid that Aunt Jemima used to pour onto her pancakes before she got fired for being a racist stereotype in the summer of 2020. Aunt Jemima? Did you know the name Aunt Jemima means slave mammy of the plantation south? Perhaps one of the best illustrations of the difference between Canadian and American attitudes towards ambition is a story that's set at the plant gates of a large industrial factory. As the workers file in for their morning shift, the boss arrives in his glimmering stretch limo. The workers scatter and the limo drives through the plant gates. The American worker looks at this and says to his buddy, who the fuck does he think he is, man? Fuck him. He ain't no better than me. Someday that'll be me in that goddamn car being driven through them gates. The Canadian looks at the boss's limo and says, Who the fuck does he think he is, eh? Fuck him, eh? Now I'm telling you this for a reason. Because to truly integrate into your new country, Canada, you'll need some cultural tools. You'll be competing with people for work, for love, for your brass ring, whatever form that takes. Once you've learned how to disguise your big American exceptionalist ego, you'll project a more Canadian public persona, one that speaks of community, collaboration, and telegraphs only one sentiment. Hey, we're all in this together, eh? But mark my words. Once I teach you how to pretend to subjugate your blind ambition and damp down that massive American ego of yours, you'll do well up here. I know. I'm exceptionally good at it. And fear not, your country tis of the spirit will always be with you, just below the surface, and you'll eat everyone's lunch. I mean, <laughs> look at me. I created this podcast that you just downloaded for free. Hit subscribe, like, and write a kind review if you're so inspired. And in exchange, the Yes We Canada podcast will help you get into Canada where Medicare is free. How's that for Canadian exceptionalism? Exceptionalism.